Today on The Ticker Tapes, we hear from Halima, who almost died while pregnant with her baby girl. They said to my parents that she's got four hours left to live. Come and say your goodbyes. So when I woke up from all of this, I remember my husband, he was telling me that my entire extended family had gathered at the hospital. They were all crying and wailing and as if, you know, this was it really. And my parents were preparing for my funeral. From the British Heart Foundation, I'm Bill Snadden. On this episode, Halima talks with me about living with a rare condition that led to major heart problems and how her world changed the moment she looked into her daughter's eyes. Halima, can you tell me what Marfan syndrome is and how it expresses itself in you? Okay, so Marfan syndrome is basically a connective tissue disorder. It's hereditary. So in me, it presents itself in terms of my from a cardiac point of view. So I have cardiac issues. I have weakness in my eyes, as Marfan syndrome can affect your eyes. I am quite tall. I've got long fingers and I've got weak joints and I have a lot of stretch marks as well. And that's caused because of the abnormal production of fibrillin that um, patients with Marfan's have. Okay. And your mum also has Marfan syndrome as well? Yes, my mum has Marfan syndrome. And unlucky for her, she has had a lot more issues with herself due to her Marfan syndrome. So, for example, after having her nine children, her health deteriorated a lot. She had bypass surgery. Um, she's had glaucoma in her eyes. She, her retina has detached multiple times. So she's had about six operations in her eyes. She's had cataracts. And recently she was admitted into hospital because the blood vessels in her brain are starting to deteriorate. And that's another issue that can be caused with Marfan syndrome. Um, so they are little bleeds forming in her brain now, which are giving her headaches all the time. But of course, they're not really doing anything about it at the minute because it's not giving her any major problems yet apart from the headaches. Okay, okay. So you inherited this condition from your mum. Yeah. And you understand that your grandfather, your mum's dad, also had Marfan? Well, we believed he had Marfan's purely because he had all the symptoms. Um, but because he was born in Pakistan and obviously medical advances were not really there for him, it was never really formally diagnosed. Um, but when he did pass away, we sort of put one and one together and we sort of in our own mind said, you know what, we think he had it because when my mum was officially diagnosed, you know, a click sort of just went and we thought, okay, mm-hmm. that, he definitely had that. He had all the symptoms. So he spent his entire life with all these issues. With He was really, really tall. Um, he had multiple heart issues. I mean, he ended up dying of heart failure. Um, he had really weak eyes as well. So he was almost nearly blind mm-hmm. by, towards the end of his life. And his joints were always hurting, but nobody could really, you know, give him a proper answer. So he just spent his life, you know, suffering from Marfan's without a clear diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Okay. And you're one of nine siblings, is that right? Yes, I'm one of nine. Okay. And how many of those siblings uh, have Marfan? So five of us have it and four of them don't. Okay. And it expresses itself very differently in all of you, I understand. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, so, for example, my younger siblings, you know, my youngest sibling who has it, she's 21 this year. Um, so in her, it's just, you know, she's quite tall. But so far, she's been okay. Um, no surgeries or anything like that. So she's living her life, you know, to the utmost full. Um, whereas my older brother, he ended up having... I think two cardiac surgeries, both at different times. Mm. But yeah, it's completely different. Like my eldest sister, she also has Marfan syndrome. Um, Her aorta did grow abnormally, but they managed to nip in the bud and she had a valve repair. And since her surgery, I think it's been about six years now, she's been she's been completely fine. She's, you know, working as a radiotherapist. She's recently at a house and yeah, she's just, you know, living her life. Mm -hmm. And what was it like for you, Halima, growing up with Marfan syndrome? As a child, I didn't really know what it was, if I'm honest. I mean, all I remember is when I was in primary school, I used to be taken out of school a lot to go for hospital appointments. And they used to do thorough physical checks on my body. They used to make me do like funny exercises with my limbs to see how flexible my joints actually were. Mm. They would check my heart. They would do scans and all sorts. Um, and so as a child, I didn't really fully understand what it was. I just knew that something was wrong with me. And for me, the only thing that I couldn't stand was when I would get involved in any heavy form of exercise or, you know, physical activity, 
I would run out of breath a lot quicker than other children and I would be quite slow compared to others in that sense because my heart would just beat too fast and I could never catch my breath. And at school, at primary school, were you picked on? Was there bullying? Yeah, so because of my marfans, I've always been quite tall. So with the roof of my mouth, um, people with marfan syndrome, they could have a high arched palate. Um, so with me, I had crowded teeth. Um, so I would get called all sorts like Bugs Bunny, you know, goofy, four eyes because I would get wear glasses. Very original. Um, <laughs> um, and also I was very tall. So they'd call me lanky or, mm. you know, I was really skinny as well. So I'd get called a skeleton. Hmm. I mean, there was all sorts um, yeah. that I was called. And I wouldn't really get picked for sports teams, even though I was a part of all sports teams. But, you know, in the actual PE lessons, when, you know, you have two team captains and they get to choose their team, I'd always get picked last because I was the slowest person or, you know, I'd get out of breath and I'd have to take a break. Whereas the, you know, the rest of the class could literally run as far as they could mm. without having any issues. Um, so, yeah, it was a difficult time in primary school. But you love sport, though. Yeah, I did. And to be honest, I didn't give up at all in primary. I was in all the school. Um, I was in the football team, the hockey team, the rounders team. And thankfully, my teachers saw my potential and they did accommodate for me. So when I played football, instead of having me as a midfielder, they would have me as a goalkeeper. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't physically burden me as much as a, you know, midfielder role would have. So I really enjoyed that. And then even with hockey, I was a goalkeeper a lot but I was also a defender mm -hmm. so again I didn't have to physically run across the whole field as much as everybody else would okay um so yeah it was quite good and even with swimming I used to love swimming I was always get involved um but I was in the cross-country teams that I would take part in all the cross-country races where all the local primary schools would get together and run I would always come last um but I always used to go because I loved doing it and I didn't really at that time I didn't really care what people thought I just did it because I it was something that I loved to do. Mm. Um, although, you know, the name calling and, you know, getting picked on or, you know, letting the school down, for example, that all came with it. But mm. um, I didn't give up. And I still, I've still got all the certificates today. So I'm quite proud of the fact that I did that. Yeah. I think there was only one time where I came second last. And that was like the best day of my life. That's a gold medal, Halima. <laughs> yeah. It really was. But you just cracked on um, yeah. and, and tried to uh, ignore the, the taunts and the insults and the bullying as best you could. Yeah, I did. And to be fair, because I don't really understand why it was happening, I would sort of just brush it off. I think when I came to the point where I would, I started to understand why it was happening at the age of 13, 14, when I you know, left primary school, I'd moved on to secondary school, that's where I sort of thought, okay, you know, this is happening because of this. So if I don't do this, then, you know, the name calling won't happen. So for example, with sports, so I literally just you know, I dropped out of all the teams in secondary school. I was in them in year seven, year, se year eight. I didn't do anything. Mm. I sort of really shut myself off. I didn't take part in any physical activities. I'm, I've still got my school report for year nine where the teacher has written, you know, PE is obviously one not one of Halima's favourite subjects where she spends more time in the changing room than she does out on the mm. field. But that's all related to that. So yeah, I really shut myself off then. At that age, I just literally um, shut myself off from partaking in into sports or anything that put me at the center of the room or whatever I just like to stay you know in the back where nobody could see me just go and do my thing and then come home mm. and did that persist were you able to get through some of that or did that kind of stay with you through your teenage years to be fair to this day I'm still really self-conscious um and I think that's because from in school, it was more, you know, being tall, looking different. But now as an adult, I know I know now that, you know, everyone comes in all forms of shapes and size and whatnot. So I'm not too anxious about my physical height because these days it's good to be tall. Um, but it's different things like, I don't know, the way my heart functions and just how I get out of breath when I walk a certain distance or the fact that I wear glasses, you know, that really bothers me. Mm. thankfully my teeth have fixed themselves with braces um so I'm not too worried about my teeth anymore but it's still sometimes there like oh if one of my teeth feels like it's wobbly like oh my god everybody's staring again mm. you know I feel like I'm constantly looked at yeah did you get called train tracks with your braces yeah <laughs> um, uh, kids can be cruel can't they they can they can be cruel but they can be kind do you, do you remember yeah. any moments of, of kindness and and um I guess solidarity from kids when you were growing up yeah I did um I had two really close friends in primary school and they really stuck by me through you know thick and thin 
and they're really, really nice to me and they really encouraged me to not give up. And I feel that's one of the main reasons why I didn't quit sports, for example, because I remember them being on all the teams and I would want to go because they were there. Mm. So on the days that they weren't there, I would definitely feel a bit more worried about being there or even, you know, when I was getting picked on, they would stand up for me or they would go and tell the teacher. Mm. Um, but yeah, they were always there. Yeah. And even to this day, we're still close. Where I've got them on all my social media platforms. We're literally talking to each other all the time. Mm. I wanted to ask actually about... Um how your mum was and, and siblings during this time um, with uh, when you were growing up. Was there much support there? Was there much information around? To be honest, there wasn't much information around because at the time when I was diagnosed, I feel like Marfan syndrome was only, I'd want to call it new, but I know obviously it's a disease that's been around for many, many years, but I would call it new in the sense that medical professionals were only just starting to pick up on it and diagnose people with it. I remember even partaking in a a voluntary, I'm not sure what to call it, but it was like a training program where I would volunteer, I would go to the hospital and a group of medical professionals would come to my bay and there was only three of us there like three other children with different heart conditions and they would do thorough checks on us and, and they would learn from me and my condition. Um, so I sort of was the teaching study for them mm. um, and I think that was in 2005 or 2004 around that time mm. so that's when I feel like there was more of a focus on that and obviously I was diagnosed and my siblings were diagnosed and even with my mum of course because I remember she was saying that for many years when she was growing up she would complain of aches and pains but her family didn't really appreciate that and they would just say oh She's just saying it to get out of doing stuff or, you know, she's faking or you know, she's always complaining or she's just being slow, she's being lazy, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So for her, I think it was definitely a, um, it was closure from what she'd been through in the sense that there was finally an answer. You mm. know, she finally knew what was what and she could deal with it heads on from that point. Mm. So she just soldiered on and, and then you were just soldiering on as well. Yeah, even with me, like I'd ne- like, even to this day, I've never spoken to my parents or my siblings about any bullying that I've been through in my life or any, I've just never, it's just not something that I've done. Mm. Um, I've never spoken to them about how I feel in, in terms of my anxiety or mental health, anything like that. I've always just brushed it off and, you know, acted like everything's completely fine. Um, so I hope they don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll make sure we send it, this to your family, yeah. Helena. And then everything will really come out. Is that because you don't want to appear weak or you don't want to put your burdens on them? I'm not sure. It's I don't want to look weak because that's definitely something. I have a lot of pride in me. I don't want to come across as somebody who's quite weak in front of my family. I do quite. I do like appearing as a strong one. Mm. Um, but also, I just don't want to throw my burdens on them. Mm. It's, it's just hard to explain, really. I don't know. I've never really thought about why I've not wanted to. Because I don't think they would understand because nobody really understands what you're going through unless they're going through it themselves. And I feel like everybody's scenario is so different. For me, what could feel like hell for them is something that's just completely nothing. Mm. So it's all relative. So I mm. think that's probably why I feel like I can't open up to them. Mm. Did you also say that um, your mum didn't know she had Marfan until she'd had her nine kids yeah she had no idea that she had it until all of us were born and when we were diagnosed as children that's when my mum was also diagnosed as well so I guess it's hard for your mum to to offer the support and provide the information when she's not quite sure of her her own condition yeah exactly Mm. and it's why with a lot of what I've been through in my life it's something that my mum could never have prepared me for because her situation was completely different and how Marfan affected her was completely different as well. Mm. So there was not really much there to prepare me for what was to come. Mm. Can you tell me about uh, becoming pregnant at 21? And I understand it was uh, an eventful pregnancy. Yeah, so when I was 21, I fell pregnant with my daughter, Rokea. For the first 10 weeks I was completely fine I was just you know happy that I was pregnant I was traveling around and I was actually getting ready to fly out to Portugal on the 15th of May but on the 13th I felt excruciating pain in my back was before that the only symptoms I had during my pregnancy were just you know morning sickness feeling fatigued and I'd have swollen ankles but on the 13th of May that's where it all really changed for me so when I was at my mum's house I was just washing my hands and I felt like an onset of sharp stabbing back pain and it was excruciating to the extent where I couldn't stand up and I fell to the floor at first my mum was like 
you know, try and get a hold of yourself, come and sit down. She didn't really know what was happening. And then I, my mum and my husband, they moved me to the sofa. And that's when I started vomiting continuously. And I was just screaming out in pain. Like I couldn't understand where the pain was coming from because it was so sharp. And it was, it was as if the pain was spreading throughout my whole body. So I couldn't really put my finger on where exactly the pain was coming from. So they mm. did call the ambulance and the paramedics came. And again, I was quite hysteric when they were there. They took me to Heartlands Hospital. They thought it was something to do with the baby because they knew I was pregnant. Um, so they took me there. And when I actually got to A&E at that time, they did an initial assessment and they told me I was fine. They told me to go and wait in the waiting area. Um, and I was waiting for four hours. And in that four hours, all I can remember thinking was, you know, why is there so much pain? I'm not even that heavily pregnant. I'm only 12 weeks pregnant. What could it possibly be? And I actually thought something had happened to my daughter. Mm. Um, but the pain, it was just so excruciating. I physically couldn't sit up on a chair in the waiting area. I was One minute I was falling to the floor. One minute I was trying to roll over. One minute I was trying to stand up. It was just it was just too much pain for me to bear um, and I was just waiting for three and a half hours until a doctor actually who was leaving the A&E at that time he saw me on the floor and he said you know let's get you into a cubicle because he obviously could see that something was not right with me mm. um, so thankfully he got me into a cubicle and they gave me some morphine to calm me down because the pain was just too much. You're worried at this stage that you might have lost your yeah. daughter. Yeah, yeah at that time I was very worried so I was crying out as well and at that time my mum and my husband was with me and my brother had come as well. So they'd given me morphine and I was a little bit calmer um, and I'd actually fallen asleep because of the amount of pain that I was in. Mm. Um, and when I woke up, they were actually transferring me to the women's unit um, because they thought that, of course, something was wrong with Rokea. So we went to the women's unit and there they couldn't figure out what it was. And then they took me down for scans and said it could be kidney stones. Um, so they were jumping around with what was actually happening, that jumping around from kidney stones to a stomach ulcer to, you know, something being wrong with Rokea. And they couldn't really figure out what it was. So they just left me there and said, yeah, okay, we're going to monitor her and see what happens. Um, and then my condition started to deteriorate really, really quickly. I caught pneumonia. My lungs had collapsed. I was vomiting blood. They had to ventilate me. And when they actually ventilated me, that's when they, you know, they thought, okay, let's do some CT scans and MRI and things like that. And that's when a diagnosis was finally made, like over 30 hours later that um, I actually had an aortic dissection. And... It, that's it they said to my parents that she's got four hours left to live come and mm. say your goodbyes so when I woke up from all of this I remember my husband he was telling me that my entire extended family had gathered at the hospital they were all crying and wailing and as if you know this was definitely this was it really and my parents were preparing for my funeral and they were told that, that she's got four hours left to live so they just left at that but then um they did ring around different hospitals. I remember they were saying they around Coventry, Liverpool, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, so multiple hospitals who could take me on and, you know, perform emergency surgery. Um, thankfully, Dr. Mascara from the Queen Elizabeth Hospital, he was available. They transferred me to the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. And even when I got there, I was so weak. They actually said that they wanted my stats to pick up a bit before going to theatre because they thought that if I go to theatre I'll definitely not survive so they did wait around for a couple of hours um, but then eventually they just thought we'll take a shot and just go if you know if it works it works if it doesn't then that's it so again everybody said their goodbyes and whatnot um, and of course I was completely unconscious throughout the whole of this um, so I'm just telling you whatever everyone else told me mm, when I woke mm. up. So um, they did my surgery and thankfully I did pull through and so did my daughter. So they re replaced my aortic valve, um, the root and the arch of my aorta. But um, the dissection, my entire aorta had dissected. So even now to this day, I've got a type B a dissection in my abdominal aorta, which they're keeping an eye on. But at that mm. time, they did that one surgery. I was in theatre for 10 hours. I woke up five days later thinking that it was five days before and I was just so confused with what had happened. Um, I did not know what to think. But the first thing that I did think was, is the baby okay? You know, the fact that I had heart surgery, none of that processed until I realised that actually my baby was fine. And that's when I started to deal with other things. Really, that was the point where everything changed for me. And I just felt like I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't get up. Mm. Everything felt sore, as you can imagine, having open heart surgery. Mm. Um, it was definitely a huge shock. 
but I wanted to bounce back as quickly as possible. So I literally, from the moment I woke up after the, all of that, I was moved to a ward within 12 hours. I was walking again. But then when I started, you know, making my own way to the bathroom, I felt pain again. And next thing you know, I'm being rushed back to theatre because I had a cardiac tamponade and then three times after that. So in a total, I went to the theatre five times. Mm. Um, after the fourth surgery, the bleeding was so bad that they actually left my chest open overnight. So they just packed my chest with um, swab um, mm. packs, whatever they use. But they left my chest open overnight. And then on the day after, they took me back in for the fifth time and they closed my chest up. Thankfully, the bleeding had stopped. The clots and everything would all were all clear as well. Mm. Um, and this is five operations. This is throughout your pregnancy. Yeah, throughout the pregnancy. So I was pregnant for seven months because I ended up having an early C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, but the surgeries all took place in the space of two months. I lost the use of my legs after the fifth operation. The nerves in my legs were just completely gone. Even to this day, I still have troubles with my legs. Um, so it took me a while to get back on my feet, quite literally, in that sense. I had a Zimmer frame. Um, I had a walking stick. I remember going to my brother's wedding after. I, was, I still had the stick then. And I was heavily pregnant whilst going through all of this at the same time. So it was definitely a really challenging time. What was it like having a little baby inside you after having a heart operation? And, and there this must be stitches healing and your body sore. It was really, really difficult. Um, from a physical point of view, it was it was impossible. I physically struggled so much um, to the extent where my husband had to really help me, you know, even just having a shower, you know, doing the basic things like putting my shoes on, everything hurt so badly. Um, and even with my chest, everything was when obviously I had heartburn, but that was more pregnancy related and even with vomiting due to being pregnant and having surgery, heart surgery and then vomiting soon after is really not a nice feeling at all. Um, So it was very, very difficult. I had struggles with, you know, everything, sitting up, standing up, lying down. Everything was just really, really tough. Mm. And you've got this little baby kicking. Yeah, um, the kicking. She definitely was a little kicker. She um, actually, throughout my surgeries, the surgeons would say, "Oh, she had hiccups throughout the surgery, or she, you know, she was, you know, moving around a lot." So, yeah, so she was definitely she was having a party in there, literally. Um, but yeah, I think to be honest, she is one of the reasons why. Well, the only reason why I actually kept going, because remember, I was only twenty one at that time, and I actually thought that this was going to be the best year of my life. It hadn't even been a year that you know, since I'd got married. So I actually had my first wedding anniversary having my third heart operation. So it was as if everything had come crashing down and I was ready to give up. But because of the fact that I had her inside me alive and kicking, I, again, I put my own worries, my thoughts, my stress aside and I focused on getting better for her sake because I just wanted to be better so that I can be a mum to her rather than somebody who's just sick, you know, in hospital. Mm. And you told me previously that uh, one of the specialists did have a conversation with you and asked whether you might want to end the pregnancy. Yeah, so after my second operation, they actually came to me and they asked me if, you know, first they were like, how are you feeling? And they told me what happened in detail, like the fact that I had an aortic dissection and it happened because of my Marfan syndrome and because of the fact that the pregnancy had put pressure on my heart valve which was already deteriorating is something that they didn't pick on they they didn't pick up on three years earlier when they did some scans three years earlier I was feeling um I had palpitations a lot I was feeling quite down I was feeling really ill and I went to my doctor and I did ask them you know something's wrong with me is there something you can do? And they sent me for some heart scans and had those scans and told me I was fine. They sent me on my way. So when three years later, this dissection happened, they actually went back and had a look at those scans and they realised that the results were incorrectly documented. So my aorta needed replacing or repairing at that time well, for the three years that I was there. So the fact that they told me that for the past three years, I was a ticking time bomb, mm. that again was a huge shock. So the problem was already there, but the pregnancy aggravated it because of the pressure that the baby was putting on the rest of my body. Um, And that's what caused it to become so dramatic in that sense. It just became extremely bad because of the fact that uh, the Mm. pregnancy put a lot of pressure on my body. Um, So they did say to me that because of what's happened, 
your body is in a place where if you continue with this pregnancy you could potentially end up having more surgery you know things could potentially go wrong for you again or you know because I'd, they'd given me a heart valve they were like you know you should take warfarin instead of clexane but if I started taking warfarin at that time it would have passed the placenta and killed the child but if that if I took the clexane that would have kept the heart functioning for now but it would have caused problems down the line mm. it would have caused risk of clotting etc but at that time I continued with I decided to continue with the pregnancy I mm. she was the only reason why I kept going so I said to them you know whatever's meant to happen now I'm just going to let it happen you know if it's meant to be for her to survive then I'll know she'll survive I'm not going to put her life in my hands and say okay I'll kill her for the sake of getting better quickly myself because I was already in a position of you know being in the worst possible place for myself I was I literally just had heart surgery so in my eyes nothing could really get any worse it was already at its worst so I said to them no I'm keeping my baby and yes the fact that I was still pregnant it did cause further problems later on but Mm. I'm you know I don't regret that decision at all because her life wasn't mine to play with in that sense so when I was in my sixth month of being pregnant that's when they told me that actually Rukeya has suffered as a consequence of you know, everything that's happened to you and that's when my anxiety shot up from that moment I literally could not sleep you know it was always because they couldn't see exactly what had happened because it was literally in the ultrasound scan it was just showing up as I don't know how to explain it was like you could see the head but the rest of her mm. body was like a blob I would call it you know there was so much fluid there they weren't exactly sure what was wrong with her and they did say to me that we're not going to know 100% until she's born what exactly is going on with her so again they did give me that option but I said no I'm going to continue with this I'm not going to give up on her you know I strongly believe that she will survive this and you know she's been through so much with me um you know I don't think Mm. I'm ready to give up just yet. I strongly believe that she'll be fine. Um, So they did give me the worst possible outcomes. Eventually, they actually decided to do a planned Mm. C-section at 34 weeks. Um, But Rokea was like, no, I want to come out sooner. So I ended up going to Mm preterm labor at 32 weeks. They planned to have a cardiac team on standby in case anything happened to me. They wanted to do it in a cardiac theater just in case anything happened to my heart so that everything could be there. But when I ended up going into preterm labour, it was at I ended up having Rukeya at three fifty six in the morning. So you can imagine how late it was, and no teams were there. It was literally just me um, at the women's hospital, the gynaecologist and the mm-hmm. surgeons who were going to do the C section, um, and they were they were thinking about whether to wait till the morning or whether to go ahead with it. But because my health started to deteriorate a lot more, like my capilla- my capillaries had collapsed, um, I was literally starting to lose consciousness. I couldn't breathe properly you know I was starting to feel dizzy I was feeling sick but again I wasn't feeling I was Mm. feeling so much pain because of the labor they decided to take me in and I had my daughter via emergency c-section and I had the general anesthetic because of how poorly I was I ended up losing two liters of blood in theater so as soon as she was born she was ventilated and taken to the neonatal unit and I woke up and she wasn't there anymore and they said you know she's been taken to the neonatal unit where they're going to you know do tests on her she was her, she was breathing with the help of machines um mm. so yeah it was a very difficult time like I woke up and everything had just changed um but again I was thankful to be alive because before we went in they said you know say your goodbyes mm. because only one of you is going to survive there's no chance that both of you are going to make this so for me at that time it, I think that was mm. the most difficult you were told that only one would survive the pregnancy that was the most difficult thing time of that entire period I didn't know what to think because on one hand I had my husband and my mum and dad and on the other side I had my child who I'd never even met so it was like saying goodbye to them and also saying goodbye to her as well and even though I did say goodbye to her you know in my own little way because I know she was still inside me and said goodbye to my family part of me did believe that you know we'd both pulled Mm. through and thankfully we did um so I was sort of grieving for Mm. her before I even had her um so yeah when I did wake up. I was just so grateful that both of us had survived, regardless of, you know, the situation that we were in at that time. Yeah. And you've also told me previously about some of the guilt you felt during your pregnancy. Yeah. So 
I felt guilty in the sense that for me, I mean, even to this day, sometimes I do feel it that if I didn't have that aortic dissection at the time that I did, Rakea wouldn't have suffered. I mean, Rakea, her condition, that was caused because of the lack of blood supply. And when I was on life support, her oxygen was cut off. Um, Mm. And as a result, she suffered massively. She ended up having multiple laparotomies. She was born with a short bowel. She's been to theatre much more times than me. She's been to theatre 11 times. Um, She's fed via parental nutrition, so fed through her veins. She was tube-fed fully at the start as well. She ended up spending 10 months in hospital. So all of that, everything that she's been through and everything that she's going through now, you know, it wouldn't have happened if... I didn't have that aortic dissection at that time. You know, if I hadn't been put on life support at that time, she would have been completely fine. So, yeah, I did have a lot of guilt. And even now, sometimes to this day, when I feel that she's going through pain or, you know, she's going through her own struggles, I do feel it that, you know, if that didn't happen, you know, she would have been fine. And it's always just, I think it's just something that's always going to be there. No matter how much I tell myself, that no, it's not your fault. It was actually the doctor's fault for misdiagnosing you for not picking up on your issue three years earlier. Part of me is always going to feel like, you know, it was me that decided to continue the pregnancy. Sometimes I do feel like, you know, should I have relieved her from all her pains? You know, there's just so much. And I feel like the more I talk about it, the more I'm going to get upset. So I think I would just want to end that there. <laughs> That's all right. How old's Rakaya now? She's actually three um, right now. She's going to be four in September, which again, mm-hmm. they told me she wouldn't survive the pregnancy to start off with. She wouldn't survive the C-section. She wouldn't survive the surgery that she went through. They told me all sorts. Um, even with her condition, they said she'd never eat or drink. She'd never walk. She'd never talk. She'd never blah, blah, blah. But she is literally the most strongest, most resilient child I've ever met. She can walk. She can talk. And thankfully, she can eat and drink. Yes, it's limited. Yes, she relies on, you know, being fed through her veins for a majority of the time but she's still doing all the things that they said she wouldn't be able to do and I like to focus on that more than you know focusing on what she can't do um mm. so yeah I am really proud of her and you told me before the call that she's currently outside in the sun with your sister playing with some new toys yeah um, even that is something that I would never imagine that she would have done but yeah she's a really happy child I mean even if you saw her now you wouldn't think that she goes through so much internally um also my child she's um okay she's also got Marfan syndrome as mm-hmm. well as her short bowel syndrome but as she gets older that's another thing that's down the back of my mind. I'm going to have to tell her what Marfan syndrome could do to her because for me as a child, the only way it affected me was I would get out of breath. Yes, I was tall. Even with Rokea, she's tall. You know, that's the only thing, that's the only way it affected me. But only when I got older, when I realised actually it affects your health in so many more ways. And with Rokea, I'll have to explain that to her. So it is it's heartbreaking for me to think about it because I'll have to tell her everything that I went through with being mm. pregnant, you know, what could happen with her. You've also told me about how when you saw Rakaya for the first time, something in you shifted. Yeah. Um so when I met Rakaya this I'll probably get emotional here, that like whenever I think about it, it's as if my heart's in my mouth all over again. <laughs> So I met Rakea the following day after she was born because I was taken to the high dependency unit and she was taken to the neonatal um, unit. At that time, I felt as if when I woke up without her, I felt like I was grieving because I'd just given birth, but there was no baby there. You know, I was like, okay, oh, I just want to see my baby. So when I did meet her for the first time and I saw this tiny, she was less than three pound when she was born. So when I saw this tiny, tiny, tiny baby looking at me, something changed in me, like my entire focus, my entire mindset, everything changed completely. Yes, I was in a lot of pain. Yes, I was very upset with what was happening. Something shifted in me in the sense that I knew that I had to, instead of focus on how upset I was and how angry I was out what had happened I had to focus on her and getting her better and getting her out of that you know incubator and making her life better and you know helping her get through what she was going to go through because I knew from that moment that you know her life wasn't going to be an easy one I knew from that moment that actually this child is going to go through so much oh I don't know how to 
how to word it, but so much trials on a daily basis, I knew that I had to be strong and be there for her to get her through it. Like even to this day, how I mentioned earlier that I struggle to talk to my family about how I feel. I would never, ever want Rukia to feel that way. I'd want to be there for her, you know, regardless of what she goes through. I'd want to be able to be there for her to open up to me I'd want her to speak to me I'd want her to share how she's feeling I'd want to help her get through it I'd want to help her you know beat any challenge that is you know thrown her way Mm. I had more purpose in my life from that moment it felt as if everything that happened it was a build-up to this moment Mm. to prepare me for this moment Mm. um it gave me a reason to carry on Mm. tell me about your husband Usman We've actually recently just celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Um, Very different to your first um, wedding anniversary. The first wedding anniversary, Mm. I was ringing him on that morning of the 27th and I was just saying, sorry, I ruined our anniversary. I'm going for surgery again for the third time. Mm. (laughs) So, yeah, I was having heart surgery on our first wedding anniversary. So when we got married in the first yeah, before I got ill, um, we were traveling around. So we went to Turkey, we went to Cyprus, mm. we went to Morocco, we, we went up to Scotland, we went to Ireland, we, we went to so many places. And we actually, we were still traveling and we had so many more plans. Like even with Rukeya, the initial pregnancy, yes, I wanted to have a child, but that pregnancy at that time was mm. not planned. She was a surprise. And boy, what a surprise she was. <laughs> um, so... We were actually planning to go to Portugal um, in May. And the day before we were due to fly out was the day that I had my aortic dissection. So, again, I was in the right place at the right time because sometimes I imagine what would have happened if I got onto that flight Mm. and this happened. But throughout everything, he's been... He's been a huge, huge sort of comfort for me. He's been literally my rock through everything. Um, when I physically couldn't wash or dress myself, he would help me. When I was just crying, he'd give me that shoulder to cry on. When I physically, you know, felt sick, he would help me eat slowly. You know, he'd encourage me to eat. Um, and even at point times where I would just become... There were times in the pregnancy where I felt like giving up. There were, you know, there were a lot of dark moments where I thought, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Um, And he really helped me pull through those times. And even now with Rokea, he helps me so much in terms of her care. And when when I just had Rokea, so I had all those new duties of being a mum on top of recovering from five heart operations and a C-section and a postpartum hemorrhage and obviously learning to walk all over again. So there was so much going on with me. Um, He was a huge help. And even to this day, you know, he's, he's always been there for me. He's been calm through the moments where I've been stressed. Yes, we've laughed together, we've cried together, we've you know, we've even grieved together, like with Rokea, we didn't know whether she was gonna survive or not. So he's just been through so much with us and helping us, even with his own personal life, for example. He was actually still at university when we got married. So um he actually finished off his dissertation at my bedside whilst I was on life support. He finished mm-hmm. off his degree um at the hospital with me, you know. In that first year of marriage, he was working part time. But when I, when I got ill, he left that job. So we were living off savings. And when Rogaya was born again, we were just living off savings. And when she came home from hospital ten months later, so it was a blessing in disguise really that he wasn't working because he was there every single day to help me at the hospital with Rogaya with myself. When she came home, he started working, and only now he's really built himself, you know, a really cool career. He's recently got promoted mm-hmm. in his job as well. So he's always been there for us from a financial point of view, from you know helping us at home, everything. He's he's been you know he's been really great. Um, as much as I don't really like buttering him up too much, he might, you know, get to his head a bit. But um, yes, he does my head in at times. But, you know, he's been there. <laughs> and there was a moment in hospital, you've told me, where um, you'd had one of your operations and you said to Usman, um, it's okay if you want to leave because you didn't sign up for this. Yes, I, I've actually said that to him many times. But there was that one time in hospital when everything was at its peak, if you like, I did say to him that, you know, I would not blame you if you wanted to leave and, you know, because none of us signed up for this. Um, 
and it was a lot to take on because we, we'd only just got married and I did say to him that I would not be upset with you if you wanted to leave me and go marry someone else and have children with somebody else and have a healthy, happy, perfect life. And he said, no, he said, we got married and as a part of our vows, we said in sickness and in health and I never just said it for the sake of it, I meant it. So then obviously since then he's stuck by me and even now with all the challenges that we face, he's always been there for me and he does show me a lot of love even when I snapping at him or if I'm feeling upset sometimes I can be a right cow (laughs) Um, it's very honest but I'll be honest it's the hormones I always blame it on hormones but um he's always you know he's always really kind um and he's always made everything feel okay he sounds like a remarkably good man he is he is and um (laughs) Coming back to require before we uh, before we round off, you've told me that at times when you're playing around and trying to run around with her and you might be out of breath, that you at times feel like a failure of a mum. And and can you just talk me through that and how you kind of talk yourself back into feeling a bit better? Yeah. So with Rukhaya, obviously I've told you that when I had my fifth operation, I lost the use of my legs. So to this day, my legs are not. Yes, I can walk again, but the physical health of my legs have never been the same since then so I can't sit on the floor for long periods of time I can't run without my legs hurting and obviously with my heart as well I run out of breath quite quickly my heart beats faster than it's supposed to so when she's being a toddler running around she sometimes wants me to join in with her and I physically can't do it and I feel like I just feel so guilty and I feel like such a failure because I can't do things with her but then what I do is I just try and get Usman to do stuff with her instead Mm. and I try and you know snap myself out of it because look at the end of the day this is how it is now and I've really just got to try and focus on the things that I can do with her rather than the things that I can't do with her so we do have fun um, but I do feel it even to this day when we go to the park and she wants to run and play football when I physically can't run or when I'm feeling really tired I, I let her and husband run off and I just be standing. I, I feel a bit like an invalid sometimes. I just feel like I'm that person that, you know, everyone just gives their bags to while they go and play. Mm. Um, it is frustrating. I do wish that I can do so much with her in terms of, you know, running around. I wish I was as flexible as he is, for example, to sit on mm. the floor, jump around, hop about, whatever she wants to do. I wish so much that I can do that with her. But at the same time, I am grateful to have someone there to do that with her because she isn't missing out on anything in that sense. Mm. She still gets to have all that fun but I just feel like I'm missing out a little bit because I wish I was in that moment with her having that fun with her so I try and you know focus on what's Mm. what's good for her really so as long as she still gets that time she still gets that fun then it doesn't matter how she gets it as long as she still has that Mm. on the um I was meant to ask earlier with how um Marfan um affects your joints and and things like your your fingers um opening a can of beans or things like that you've said that can be difficult yeah so I've got very flexible joints um so when I'm I've obviously got long frail fingers so I don't have much strength in my hands at all so when I'm trying to open a can of beans for example my thumb sort of I'm not sure how to explain it my thumb sort of bends the other way because I've obviously I've got double joints, flexible joints. It doesn't break or snap, it just bends. Thankfully, it doesn't break or snap, but I feel like it is on the verge of it, so that's when I have to stop. Um, but it just moves out of place a lot, so I can't open a can of beans without, you know, my thumb starting to hurt, without mm. my bone bending backwards. So I always try and go for the other type of cans or I get my husband to help me with that. Or even when it's, you know, with lifting things, I don't mm. have a firm grip on anything. I can pick things up, but, you know, if it's like an important task, you know, like carrying a, a tray full of tea to somebody, I could never do that because I know that at some point my hands are going to give way and I'm going to drop everything. Mm. Um, what is one thing that people should know about you? I'll always, always make the most of every single moment because you can never know how quickly mm. and how suddenly your life can change. So now I'm somebody who would literally every single day, I live it as if it is my last because tomorrow is never guaranteed so I always live it in the moment and I live for that moment so people sometimes are calling it's mad like 
literally only yesterday, um, on Sunday, we went to Stratford-upon-Avon and um, we had a day out, we hired a boat, um, I rode the boat across the river. People would call me mad because I've just had surgery not too long ago and I'm already out and about. Um, but for me, mm. that's just making the most of my life. I know that it's a sunny day, I'm going to make the most of it, I'm going to make the most of my good health rather than focusing on, you know, the aspects of my mm. health where I'm limited. Mm. And it sounds like you've come a long way from... Um the days when you would tell me about the social anxiety to be honest when i'm out with usman and rukeya i'm fine but i still have a lot of social anxiety when it mm. comes to meeting other people like i just try and avoid any social situation in that regard but if it can't be avoided then obviously i just have to you know brave it up and endure it but i do feel a lot of anxiety in the sense that i have a mechanical valve now and it basically sounds like a ticking clock. So I, I'm always anxious about the fact that, oh, can they hear that? I'm I'm anxious about how I look. I'm anxious about my weight. Mm. So I'm anxious about everything, really. Um, and obviously part of this is to do with COVID. I've mm. not seen anyone for so long. But I'm not in a rush to be meeting anyone mm. anytime soon either, to be honest, because I've got mm. so much anxiety built up. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to just be anymore because everything's yeah. just so different now uh, i feel more comfortable in my home and or even just out with usman and rokea um when i'm with them everything seems fine or with my family but when i'm out with other people like friends i'm always worrying about what people mm. are going to think what people are going to say and for a 25 year old you've been through a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> i feel like you know having my fans and going through everything that I went through I think that's what made me grow up because before that I was somebody who was very carefree I would do what I wanted to do when I wanted to I would never think twice I mean even now I try and you know make the most of everything I like to take opportunity but I'm always thinking twice about everything I'm always you know putting measures in place you know making sure everything's safe secure and whatnot but um, from a maturity point of view you know I was the first one in my family who was independent in the sense that we've just brought our own home. Mm. That's like one of my biggest achievements mm. since having Rokea. So yeah, this is our first home now and you know, I'm building we've literally renovated everything from start to finish and we're actually going to be starting on our garden soon. We've recently decided that we're not going to wait on garden landscapers, we're just going to do it ourselves mm -hmm. now. Um so I feel like everything that's been thrown at me in my life is just made me grow up and you know let go of any immaturity that's inside me yes I'm still a kid at heart but um I really have to just get on with things and get things done I can't rely on anyone else to do I can when I say rely on people I, I mean in the sense that if I need something doing I would get it done between myself and my husband Usman I can't you know rely on someone else to come and make my life happier for me or to make my life better for me or to help me get rid of any you know sad feelings that I'm having it's all on me and myself you know I've got control over my life and I'm responsible for how I feel mm. and how I think. I'm not responsible for how someone else feels or thinks. So I'm literally just going to make the most of my life and make things better for me and my family mm. rather than focus too much on what other people are mm. saying. And what might you say, Halima, to others out there who uh, could be listening to this, other kids or adults with Marfan who might be feeling a bit alone or have gone through or are going through something like what you've gone through? I think my message for anyone who's going through what I've been going through is, firstly, you're not alone. There are people out there who care, and I'm one of them. So um, don't be scared or be hesitant to ask for help. Um, don't go through it alone. Always, you know, talk about it. It will help you feel much better. Um, and don't give up, you know, seize every opportunity rather than focusing on all the aspects that we're limited in. Focus on the things that we can do. Focus on your strengths and make the most of those strengths because you never, never know when something might happen. You know, your life can change in an instant. So I would say make the most of every single day. Even if you're feeling like you can't do anything, just do it anyway. And I promise you, you'll feel much better after doing whatever it is that, you know, you want to do. Even if it's just taking a walk, because I know from a own personal experience how hard it is just to get dressed and go out for a small walk how challenging that can be and how scary that can be going out into the big wide world do not give up and 
you're stronger than you think and I think that's definitely my biggest biggest thing we are much stronger than we think before all of this I used to be scared of a you know a simple blood test mm-hmm. now you know somebody who's had open heart surgery five times you know I've been to theatre back and forth I'm constantly having my finger pricked for blood tests and things like mm-hmm. that you know you could really surprise yourself in the moments where you know you think it's not possible um but mm. yeah i would just say just be happy and be yourselves be original try not to worry about what other people are doing focus on what you're doing and what other people think isn't really the be all and end all at the end of the day the only thing that matters is yourself and how you're feeling and if you're going to let other people control that then you're never going to be in a place where you're content but if you take control of that then you'll always feel much happier and much more content with what you know what you've got what you're going through and everything else that comes mm. with it well like many of these podcasts uh Halima, it feels like i've been in a bit of a counseling session here at the end so <laughs> thank thank you for that and um and uh thank you for sharing your story with such strength and honesty you we, are welcome we thank truly you. appreciate it and i best let you uh, get outside and play with uh, rukaya and, and the new toys yeah um all the very best and um uh yeah we wish you well After we spoke, Halima sent me a WhatsApp audio message with some advice for others that she wanted to convey during our chat. Hi, Bill. Hope you're well. I'm so sorry for the late message, but um, I literally just remembered something that I was supposed to say earlier when you asked about what advice I'd give to other people with Marfan syndrome. I think one of the biggest advice that I would say, and I can't believe I forgot to mention this earlier, is do your research and know your condition. Because had I done more research or understood Marfan syndrome properly to the extent that I do now, then I probably would have, you know, known that I'm at risk of having an aortic dissection if I wanted to get pregnant or, uh, you know, all the other symptoms I'm having. I probably would have known about them rather than, you know, having to go through all that trauma and then finding out about it afterwards. I mean, if I knew about this beforehand and the doctors, whilst they were faffing about, I could have sort of pointed them in the right direction but again I don't know about it myself so it would have been great if I'd known so I would definitely say to people you know to do their research um, learn all the ins and outs of the condition what could happen you know everything about it and also not ignore anything and don't take no for an answer so if the doctor says oh it's nothing don't take no for an answer because I'm the same if I had pushed for another scan or something then maybe they would have given me some proper answers sooner. Marfan syndrome is an inherited condition caused by faults in a particular gene. The most severe consequence of Marfan is the high risk of thoracic aortic aneurysm. This is when the wall of the main artery leaving the heart weakens, expands like a balloon and can rupture or tear, which can be potentially fatal. There is no cure or effective treatment for Marfan syndrome, and we don't fully understand how it causes aortic aneurysm. Our research, however, is determined to find out more about the biological processes that take place in the condition and find new ways that might combat them with medicines. If you've got any questions about your heart or circulatory health, call the BHF's Heart Helpline to speak with a nurse between 9 to 5 on Monday to Fridays on 0300 330 3311 or email hearthelpline at bhf.org.uk. You'll also find useful information in the episode notes and on our website, bhf.org.uk. See you next time on The Ticker Tapes.